every year on this weekend around the world, we rightfully celebrate the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And yet, we rarely stop and pause to consider who else was in the room on the day that he was born. If you were to tour his childhood home in Atlanta, you will find a charming two-story home and hear all sorts of stories about his incredible life, his childhood in Atlanta. Um, you'll hear about his father, the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., but you don't hear a whole lot about his mother, his mother, Alberta Christine Williams King. Actually, uh, the home that Dr. King grew up in was first his mother's home. She grew up in that house uh, first before raising him and his siblings there. Um, she actually gave birth to her children in a room on the second floor of that home. But Alberta King uh, worked very hard to instill a sense of self-confidence and self-respect into her children. There is an essay that Dr. King wrote during his time at Crozer Seminary, and he said this of his mom. She was behind the scenes setting forth those motherly cares, the lack of which leaves a missing link in the heart. He was always very close to her. Alberta King, um, Dr. King's mom, was born in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1903. She was born to the leaders of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. And even as a young girl, she was an activist. She participated in marches. She participated in boycotts. Um, she believed that her Christian faith ought to always be linked with social justice. And she used her education to advance causes, freedom causes. She grew up then to be, become over time a talented organizer herself. She also was an incredible musician playing the church organ. Um, she became a mother of three. But before she met her husband, she was studying to be a teacher. She received her bachelor's degree and then um, got her teaching certificate as well. But, but, but the law at that time, and this, this is actually true of my grandmother, this is true of Tim's grandmother, the law at that time said that a married woman could not teach. And so she was forced to walk away from that formal career, and she spent her life caring for her children. Tragically, she died when she was, she was actually shot in the back while playing the church organ. That's how she died. Now, everybody knows the name Martin Luther King Jr., but few of us know the name of his mother. And in a similar way, you could say, you know, many of us know the name Billy Graham, but few of us know the name of the person who was his Sunday school teacher who actually led him to faith in Christ. As humans, we're very drawn to you know, power, to position. We think it's the people with the titles who somehow are the heroes of the story. But in our scripture passage today, Jesus says, it is not so in the kingdom of God. That the hero of the story that Jesus tells in Luke 10, the hero is not the obvious choice to Jesus' hearers. And it's kind of one of the things I love most about the Bible is just the unpredictability of it. Like, just when you're feeling all safe and cozy, you know, in the covers of your sacred book, 
counting on the Bible to support what you already think. You already think something about God. You're sure the Bible's going to, you know, affirm that. All of a sudden, that book that you love kind of like lets a heretic in to be the hero of the story. You know, somebody who doesn't think like you think or act like you act, that is what happens in the story. Somebody who has clearly made all the wrong choices when it comes to where God is counting. And yet this sacred scripture honors that very person, makes that very person the hero of the story while you're kind of standing on the sidelines going like, what, what, wait a minute. What just happened here? And I love that about the Bible because it, it's kind of like it reminds me, I am not the only author of God's eyes. Like God's heart is way more spacious. That even when I think I'm like safe and secure in what I think, the Bible has to say, oh, well, my tradition has always taught that God is greater than my need to be right. That God is greater than even my own understanding. And, you know, that, that can be very disorienting. That can be very upsetting at first. But also it's very freeing. There's, because we're kind of reminded that there, there's always something more we can learn about the spaciousness of God's heart, the people who he welcomes to the table. And his table has room for a lot more people than I think it should include. And the story of the Good Samaritan, is, it's, it is one of those stories in the Bible. The, the problem, probably the most obvious problem with the story of the Good Samaritan is we're so familiar with it. It's almost like we can't hear it anymore. Uh, the, the first thing about the story is um, the Bible actually never calls it the story of the Good Samaritan. So if you have that heading in your Bible, it's because an editor put it there maybe to let you know what the story is, help you find it quickly. But the problem with the heading of the story is that the story and our familiarity with it has changed the way that most people now, today, think about Samaritans. I mean, we think they're good, right? Why else would we name the medical center the Good Samaritan Medical Center? Or why else would we have a law that's, you know, to protect people who stop and help strangers, the Good Samaritan Law? When we think Good Samaritan, we think kind person. We think helpful person. But the story of the Good Samaritan, it's, it's almost like it's become so familiar, it's defined in our minds what the word means. And it kind of, in a way, it's like it sucks the punch right out of the story. Because when Jesus first told it, his followers thought of Samaritans as anything but good. So let's start where the story starts in the Bible, which would be, you, you almost could, could have named this, let's call it the story of the argumentative lawyer. That would be another way to where the story starts. Because there's this lawyer in the story. He's really just doing his job. He's asking questions. He's not doing anything wrong. He wants Jesus to tell him the truth about how things work with God. That's all he's doing. So he says, what must I do to inherit, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the lawyer asks Jesus. And Jesus, kind of like in the rabbinical style of teaching, puts that question back on the lawyer. 
asks him, what does the law say? And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then the Bible says that the man, the lawyer, wants to justify himself. And so he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into this now famous story. It's a story about a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And they come across a hurt man who's left half dead because of robbers on the side of the road. Really, the success of the story depends totally on how Jesus' hearers, who were Jewish people, saw these people the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Like whatever else Jesus' hearers would have thought about priests and Levites, one thing they would have thought for sure is these are people who deal with matters of holiness, with sacred things. These are people with titles, with position. They work in the temple. They're pretty, the priest and the Levite, you could say like they're pretty high up on the holiness scale in the minds of Jesus' listeners. They perform sacred rituals. They help people present their sacrifices to God. They are often found in the holiest place on the earth at that time. So I think it's safe to say that the priest and the Levite in the story would have been regarded. They would have been commonly thought of as people who who were people who knew what it meant to do things right. And the Samaritan, on the other hand, was very far down on the other end of the scale. The Samaritan people, they were people who worshipped the same God as the priests and the Levites, but they rejected two-thirds of the Hebrew Bible. So these groups of people had major theological differences even though they worshipped the same God. The Samaritans saw the temple in Jerusalem as a disgrace. They had their own temple on Mount Gerasim. The one in Jerusalem, they saw that as a disgrace. Uh, The Samaritans had their own separate priesthood. And people in Jerusalem saw them as just a total sham, just an elaborate sham, the whole group. So these two groups of people, they really did not like each other. They were kind of like heretics in each other's eyes. The other thing is this particular Samaritan in the story seems to be a traitor, despised Samaritan, because one of the most despised ways to earn a living at that time was to go to Jerusalem, buy wine, buy olive oil, go to Jericho, jack up the price, and sell it there. And it would seem because of the amount of money that he had to care for the man in the ditch, the fact that he likely knew the innkeeper because of doing this so often, he was probably also seen as a traitor. I mean, the only people who stayed at inns were people who had no family, they had no friends. In the minds of Jesus' audience, again, Jewish listeners at that time, this man is a despised Samaritan. That's how they would see him. It was the last guy on earth 
that the lawyer who is having this conversation with Jesus, the last guy in the world who he would want to choose as the hero of the story, no way. But what else could he do? Like the priest saw the man, went to the other side. The Levite went to the other side of the road as well left the man in the ditch. There's no one left standing except uh, the Samaritan. Like the, the lawyer can't even say the guy's name. He can't even say the S word. Like when Jesus gets around to saying to him, who do you think was a neighbor to the man in the ditch? I imagine him like clenching his teeth with his answer when he says the one who showed him mercy he couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. And he's using like five words to answer. Well, he could have just used one word and couldn't even bring himself to say it. This is not a, a story that's meant to make us feel good about ourselves. It's really a story designed to like do brain surgery on us, heart surgery on us. It's this story that is opening up the possibility that we get our good guys and our bad guys all mixed up. That none of us really knows what's inside of another person. We might think we know, you know, based on how my group and your group treat one another. We might think we know, but we really do not know. That we're all capable of surprising each other. And that sometimes one act of kindness can call into question a, a whole huge history of againstness. Jesus put good and Samaritan together in the minds of his hearers for the first time. It's like he knew sometimes we have to start telling a different story before we can ever kind of see a different future unfold. There is, um, there's a professor of uh, Jewish studies at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University. She says that uh, if Jesus had been a Samaritan, then he would have told the story of the good Jew. Isn't that interesting? That if Jesus had been a Samaritan, he would have told the story of the good Jew. She says that the best way to recover, like the punch of the story, the punch of the parable, is for you and I to imagine that the hero is the last person in the world you want to call good. Who is the last person in the world that you would ever want to call good? In this teaching, Jesus is saying, that's the Good Samaritan. And I don't know about you, but, you know, when I think about just as a young follower of Christ, it, it, it seemed to me that often, it sort of subtly, orthodoxy, like what I believed, was sort of subtly elevated over orthopraxy, you know, how I lived, what, how I lived out my faith. What I believed about God seemed to be just subtly more important. So it was like, you know, before you go out with anybody, make sure you know what you believe about Christian relationships. This is kind of subtly what, what I was taught as a young Christian, or before you ever give any money anywhere, make sure you know what God has to say about giving. Or before you ever, you know, engage someone, 
of another faith and conversation. Make sure you know what you believe about their salvation. And I don't know about you, but these were kind of things that were subtly said. And yet when I think about this story, when I think about Jesus, Jesus never said, figure me out. Jesus always said over and over, follow me. Not a list of rules about me. Not a bunch of regulations around belief. Follow me, a person. Love God, love your neighbor. This is life. Because that stranger that I am silently judging in my head, that person on the side of the road might actually be an angel of God. Maybe it's like our lives are meant to kind of upset our beliefs at times. Seems like that happens in this story. You know, maybe instead of always going to my life and asking it to reinforce my beliefs, maybe there is a dance at play between the people that I meet and what the scriptures say about who God is. Maybe it's a better idea, at least in part, to let our lives teach us things about God. Because here's the thing. If you would have asked that man in the ditch what he believed about who was going to help him, who do you think is going to help you, man in the ditch on the side of the road? Do you think it's going to be your clergyman? Do you think it's going to be like the deacon of your own faith? Or do you think it's going to be this despised foreigner? What do you think he would have said? He would have gotten it all wrong. He would have given the wrong answer. He would have had the wrong belief. And it was not until later when he's lying in a clean bed in an inn with all his bills paid that he would have to revise that answer. Like he would have to update his beliefs to match what had just happened. Like a good Samaritan? Who would have ever thought? In that case, his, his belief needed revision. Richard Rohr says this, Christianity is a lifestyle. It's a way of being in the world that is simple, nonviolent, shared, and loving. However, we've made it into an established religion and all that goes with that and avoided the lifestyle change itself. One could be warlike, greedy, racist, selfish, and vain in most of Christian history and still believe that Jesus is one's personal Lord and Savior. The world has no time for such silliness anymore. The suffering on earth is too great. In the spirit of keeping it simple, sometimes I just wonder, like, is not our belief we really need is love God and love your neighbor. This is what the story almost like brings it down to this very fundamental. Jesus is like, love God, love your neighbor. This is life. According to Jesus, this actually has power to change the world, like one ditch at a time change the world. And I'm not exactly sure what that looks like for you to pull that off in your life, to apply the teaching of Jesus in your life. But my guess is you could figure it out. Because given the choice of passing by on the other side 
and being moved to act with compassion, Jesus is saying, like, the answer is as clear as a bell. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do love. It's not a feeling. It's an action. Now, a quick word uh, before we just wrap it up. Quick word about compassion in our day. It seems there's confusion, and sometimes I fall into it, about what it means to be a person of compassion. Jesus seems to be calling out the fact that the priest and the Levite were turning away from the need that was actually right before them while they were on their way to a different need down the road. I wonder if a modern-day equivalent to this is that it's entirely possible to be praised as a very compassionate human being right now if I just post the right amount of thoughtful outrage on social media about the many injustices in the world, never mind that I completely neglected and ignored the actual children in my care in order to curate those posts. Never mind that I neglected the real actual neighbors on my block in order to curate that oh-so-very-compassionate post about all of these big injustices in the world. There are so many voices right now saying, like, if you are not talking about, doing something about, performatively posting about fill in the blank, you are incredibly callous. You are privileged. You are clearly someone who is a part of the problem. Silence is violence, we're told. So you better show up about every injustice facing the planet. Show us that you're a person that cares. Never mind that you had to, you know, shove your children onto screens for hours on end in order to come up with those perfect tweets. And I just want to kind of like remind myself, remind us all that God is calling us to love the actual people in our lives, the real humans before us, the flesh and blood man in the ditch you encounter on the way in your journey in life. It's like the story is saying it's more important that you show up there than it is to fine-tune all of your beliefs about why that man is there in the first place. God did not design our human hearts, our minds, our bodies, our psyches to be able to care for all that we're exposed to through technology today. So remember, like, even Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, there were still people who were poor. There was still brokenness and injustice on the planet. He didn't heal every single person. And yet, we don't want to, like, let ourselves off the hook in this very powerful story. We Doing nothing about injustice and brokenness, that's hardly the answer. So what do we do? There's this tension, right? Can't do everything. Or you just bury your head in the sand and do nothing. 
What do we do? Here is one thing. I wonder if each day we're simply to ask ourselves three questions that Suzanne Stabile poses. She says, each day ask yourself, what's mine to do? What's not mine to do? What's mine to say? What's not mine to say? (laughs) Maybe the hardest one. What's mine to care about? What's not mine to care about? Because someone else may be called to care about something that is very worthy to be cared about. But you're not called to care about every single worthy cause in the same way. It it doesn't mean that that thing is not important, but it is okay to do what is yours to do, to say what's yours to say, to to care about the thing that's yours to care about. Nadia Boltz Weber has this, I love this image she provides. She, um, She just says, you know, our world is on fire right now. I mean, literally and metaphorically, our world is on fire right now. She says, but you only have so much water in your bucket to help with the fires. It's a piece of realizing that God is God and you are not. You have only so much water in your bucket to help with the fires. And she goes on to say, the more that you expose, that you uh, expose yourself to fires that you have no water to fight, the more likely you are to get burned, the more likely you are to inhale smoke, making it that you can't help anybody anymore, not even the real people right before you. When we get all caught up in every single cause, some of which have other people's names on them because God made us a body, and some are an arm, and some are a leg, and, you know, some of them have other people's names. You abdicate on those fires that are close enough to you to actually fight. The ones that have your name on them, it's okay to focus on one fire. That is okay. Something that we um, sometimes like to say as a staff team is we'll say, let's do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. You're not going to solve world hunger, but can you do for one, one person, what you wish you could do for everyone in the world hunger crisis? If immigration reform is yours to do, thank you and do it and go deep on that. That's enough. Go deep right there and realize, yeah, of course, there are going to be people who are saying, Yeah, but what about adoption? Don't you care about the orphans? What about climate change? Do you hate the planet? There's always going to be people. And to some extent, while awareness is a good thing, to some extent, you have to kind of tune that out and go like, this is what I'm focused on. This is what God has called me to. I am not saying we should bury our heads in the sand. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's no human heart on the planet that can bear all of what is happening right now. Nobody. So thank you for doing your part in your thing. 
whether it be you know, racism or poverty or domestic violence or immigration or orphans. Those are worthy to be cared about things. And you don't need to be the next MLK. You don't need to be the next Billy Graham. You just need to love God and love the real people that God places in your path, not stepping to the other side of the road. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. And maybe, who knows, maybe you will be like Alberta King. Without him, we would never have that outcome. Let's pray together tonight. God of mercy, you have shown us such mercy when we were the ones in the ditch. You came, you rescued, you redeemed. Help us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. May we not be the ones to cross to the other side of the street like the priest and the Levite, but may we be the ones who go down into the ditch with you, with the ones that you've placed on our path. So God, you step down into the ditch of this earth to bring us back to you, and all we can say is thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.